You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Another Name for Everything. So, full disclosure, when it came to this episode, I was super tempted to start this by singing the theme song of The Empire Strikes Back. Because today's topic is Jesus and the Empire. Well, now's your chance, Bray. Dun, 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 Okay, I'm not going to keep going. That's good enough. You guys can do the rest. Sorry, Lucasfilms, if we owe you oh, $100, crap. $100 million right now. <laughs> I didn't think kidding. about we'll that. Get that. No, no, okay. I'm sure it's fine because it's your interpretation of it. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is, for me, this is when we really see our own skin in the game. How does faith become a living prophetic thing and not just something that we talk about on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half and get weak coffee and delicious cookies afterwards. Mm, yeah. The nice Christianity that we grew up with, with like the Jesus, the flowing hair and the perfectly white clothes, which why, why, where did that come from? Like is he's wearing white clothes and the blue sash. That's so it came from, that must be like somewhere in, in art history. Right. There was like value assigned to that. Anyway, the Jesus who's sitting there with the blue sash and the little lamb and the children, and he's looking so sweet, obviously is a construct of certain cultures and, and you know traditions. I did not grow up with the badass Jesus. Yeah. The Jesus who was not afraid to stand up to empire, the Jesus who was actually prophetic and um, a radical activist, not in a zealotry, or let me say it again, not in a zealous way, but in a very powerful, creative, and um, nonviolent way. Do you remember when you discovered this kind of wild, radical, deeply rooted Jewish rabbi called Jesus? Like that, that, that one that kind of lives and breathes and not the, the one of like the pasty. The pasty Jesus? Yeah. The pasty Swedish Jesus? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think somewhere along, along the, the, um, Somewhere in my own trajectory, while I was still in a, in a mega evangelical church, mm-hmm. we started a conversation about uh, the history and the context of Jesus. It was like the contextual historical studies movement that was sweeping all the mega churches, it seemed. But that conversation of beginning to understand what was happening historically in Jesus's time, mm-hmm. like what was really taking place to, un- to help us relate to his life and the scriptures in a new way. I remember it It was like, it blew my mind. I was probably, I don't know, 19 years old at the time. And it felt like I was just encountering Jesus for the first time. Yeah, it's funny you say that you were 19 because that was when it was for me when I was at Bible college. Right. And I had a professor who I always give her credit for ruining my life because she helped me see a Jesus who was much more different than what I felt like I'd been raised with. And what does it mean to uh, find a Jesus who speaks truth to power, who is not uplifting an empire, but mm-hmm. is creating alternative community outside of empire, living simply, healing as a political act? Like it is, it, it, yeah, I felt like the scales fell from my eyes. And I was like, this is a Jesus I've been looking for and longing for, but I just didn't know existed. And it has huge implications for us, right? Yeah. Because... If the universal Christ is alive in the example of Jesus, then we have to kind of look to that personal gateway to understand what are the universal implications of that? How are we supposed to be living? And 
how do we relate or choose not to relate to the empire of our own times and in our own context? That's so well said. And I think I'm grateful that our conversation on the universal Christ took us to a place where we can look at Jesus' own relationship or non-relationship with empire and the implications for today. And Brie, I have to acknowledge that this there's a, a weight and a heft to this conversation as we think about how we live inside of an empire where we know that there are injustices at play and this is not something that just happened during Jesus' time, but that we're living inside of empire now. And that, that the, the, the weight of that just kind of, you can kind of feel it in the air in our conversation. Yeah, this stuff isn't easy. Yeah. I mean, but nor should it be, right? Like at the end of the day, I think we're all longing to really live this out and, and understand how we can live this out. And I really appreciate that Richard highlights the fact that there's a cost. <laughs> there's a cost to actually living this out. There's a cost to, to wanting to uh, live into this, this type of prophetic imagination that Jesus is showing us um, is somehow the Christic way. Hmm. Yeah, and there's also a joy there too, right? Like in that community that, that decides like, we actually, I feel called and compelled to live a different way from a different set of values. Hmm. There's a joy in going on that journey together, even if it is outside of the norms. Yeah. And you know, Paul, something that I kind of wish we had talked about in the episode is the role of joy in Jesus's life, right? Mm -hmm. He's not exactly described as somebody who was heavy or morose. He's being described as somebody who was fully alive and had dinner parties with the wrong people, yeah. you know? And I just, I want to just share that because this is hard. And as we talk about it, I think it's important to remember that, that joy has a role to play in this too. That being together with the people you love and laughing and sharing meals together is going to be a part of how we live into this Christic path together. Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's something about like, whatever your own internal monologue is, if whenever you get down, Jesus would have invited you to a meal. <laughs> what would Jesus do, bracelet, but then like, <laughs> what would Jesus do, comma, he would have wine. And appetizers. And appetizers. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Jesus takes down the empire, one appetizer at a time. Okay, just cut that out. <laughs> no, but in all, in all seriousness, uh, we hope that you enjoy this episode and that it helps you understand maybe some ways that we can look to Jesus to, to see the ways that we can live into our own uh, prophetic role with the empire now. So here's our conversation with Richard on Jesus and empire. Okay, Richard. So we've talked about this value of public virtue. And if Jesus is our central reference point as an exemplar, an embodiment of the universal Christ, then there's a lot that we can glean about the nature of the universal Christ or the character of Christ, if I can say it that way, through looking at Jesus's example. Yes. Especially as we consider the ways that Jesus creatively resisted the oppressive empire and the religious exclusion of his time. Could you tease out some of the character traits of the universal Christ through Jesus's lived example? And by that, I mean, besides being a really good walker on water and <laughs> good at making more wine. Okay, this is important because some people naturally think I'm overdrawing the distinction between Jesus and Christ. 
Remember, unity is first you distinguish and then you reunite. We just lumped them together too quickly before we distinguished. But my final goal isn't to keep them separate. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right saying, we believe Jesus already revealed the universe of Christ. Uh, in other words, Jesus, image of God. I preached on the prodigal son this Sunday. And I said, this is as close as we're going to get to Jesus' image of what God is like. So we would still believe Jesus leading us to universal truth. But without the Christ, you don't know that the goal even is a universal truth, a universal metaphysics. You think it's just nice stories that Jesus taught uh, here and there. Uh, so the main, I think the main way it's been rediscovered is our reappreciation of history. That, that we're all historically limited and we force this historical limitation on Jesus himself. Example number one, we pretended he was not a Jew. <laughs> we acted as if he was a European, a white man, a Catholic, a Christian. I mean, it's, it's laughable, <laughs> but it's very true. Yeah. Even art revealed it. You know, he was painted like a Dutch man of the 14th century or something, 17th century. Uh, so, a lack of appreciation for Jesus could only take the particular moment of time, understand, and factor that in. Like when he reveals, we're all bothered by this text, probably the most problematic one, reveals the patriarchal assumption of a Jewish male toward a woman. And, uh, you know, it doesn't treat her very nicely, actually. It's almost as if to reveal this is where culture was at that time. That was the context. That was the context. But what we have there in that story uh, is he apologizes, he recognizes his mistake. So it's a full teaching. It has the step backward and the step forward, which I think is true of the whole Bible, that the problem is included in the solution. Mm -hmm. The problematic texts are in there. Wow, just to know that is a wonderful piece of hermeneutic, that not every line is a three-step forward line. In fact, a lot of them are two-step, three-step backward lines. So um, I say in the book, The Universal Christ, Jesus represents the personal, the relational, the devotional, the individual. Christ represents the universal, the metaphysical, the... Uh, uh, the uh, tendency toward uh, the big story. Um, and that's why you have uh, the Christ in John's gospel making these strong universal statements. And you leave them in the mouth of Jesus, and let's be honest, we're a little bit embarrassed. Uh, Jesus seems to be so self-centered. <laughs> so I am this, I am that. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's like, oh, do we have to defend this? 
You know, it was Jesus really egocentric? I mean, you can't help. I know you don't want to admit that, but you can't help but wonder that. Once you know it's the Christ making metaphysical statements, not personal statements, then we're not talking about joining the Jesus Club. We're talking about seeing the universal patterns of reality. Mm -hmm. That death and resurrection are always true in Hinduism or in India 10 centuries before Christ. It's still true. It's always true. Among the aboriginals, among the natives, among the Buddhists, you can't say that's not true. Uh, so we could play this out. It really, you could write a whole book just on this mm -hmm. subject. Mm -hmm. The interplay between Jesus and Christ, mm -hmm. how they regulate and balance, in my opinion, one another, mm -hmm. if we have them both. But let's go back. Let me say it one more time. You first must distinguish before you can unite. Mm -hmm. Uniting isn't uniting two things that are the same. They're the two things that are different. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if if it's possible to make um, a connection between what you just described as as the personal and the metaphysical, right? Jesus and the Christ as meeting in the center point of the social. In other words, mm, go ahead. Jesus personally seems to manifest the universal metaphysical in his actions yeah. at the social level his oh, social critique right on good interpretation of what we're trying to say and because we didn't have that tension held most of us missed the social implications of jesus yeah. teaching that's it yeah. Yeah. yeah very well put exactly yeah. we made him entirely a teacher of individual salvation mm -hmm. and didn't recognize how often he was socially critiquing his own Judaism, his own culture, uh, his own gender. Uh, I mean, when you think, for example, of the, the fights about gender today, and Jesus is already saying things, in the final image, there will be no marriage or giving in marriage, but all will be children of God. Mm -hmm. That's a great, big, huge, genderless world. If we just took that and put it in creative tension with our... He never once talks about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And you'd think it was a defining image of him by contemporary Christianity. But that's, in my opinion, we didn't hold the bandwidth that universal and personal creates for us. Mm -hmm and therefore didn't come to the social universal meaning, mm -hmm. just the personal, and it became saccharine and silly. I don't know what else to yeah. say. Yeah, it was the sweet, nice and Jesus sweet that, Jesus. you know, just held, held children <laughs> and a lamb. Why was there always like lambs? In his lap. There lambs, was always lambs yeah. in the pictures. It was like kids and they're then cute. like a few yeah. lambs. But this is once they get dirty, right. you probably don't see them. <laughs> right, but this is right. right. Jesus doesn't touch those ones. But that's that's the thing that is so um, missing. Mm. At least was missing in, in my childhood oh, yes. understanding oh, yes. of Jesus is this this social radical. You yeah, know, radical social. Now you're ready for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And holding Jesus as that radical 
social and and I love the way you talked about the personal and the metaphysical coming together in the social because you know Richard in your latest monograph uh, what do we do with evil you talk about Jesus and his his the, the the radical lifestyle that he lived and in today's terms we'd probably say you know his radical lifestyle of activism um, you know there, and there's four things that you named that I want to just you know raise to our listeners and ask if you can unpack these terms because they seem to have ready application Ooh, for our, our world today. Them. What are well, they? I'm going to read them oh. right now because it seems to really to, to Bree's point it, it holds right. that, that social space. Um, so you talk about Jesus' refusal to, to participate in systems of oppression, how he lived a simple life, uh, a life of nonviolent resistance, and forgiveness and healing of individuals. Can you take a minute to unpack each of those as how they were um, kind of living in that place of the universal and the personal and what how the Christ was manifesting through each of those modalities of activism and again that may be the wrong term because it in our language of today you know it yeah images of protest come up but it's it's more encompassing than that like it's like the prophetic mysticism that he was living into there you go there you go let me start with the last one because i'm going to reformulate it a little bit maybe only a mystic can see this but He's not just forgiving individuals. He's forgiving Judaism for being legalistic and ritualistic. Mm. He's forgiving the Romans for being oppressive. He's forgiving the world. (laughs) And that's where union with God leads you. Not just to individual forgiveness, but to universal forgiveness of reality for being reality. Absurd. Yeah, absurd. (laughs) Yeah. We all have to get there. Damn it, I wish it wasn't this way. I mean, aren't most of us feeling that these days? It's just how bad can it get? And if you can't do that, or you think you've got to make it unabsurd, you're going to go crazy. It, uh, my prediction would be on the last day, if there is such a thing, the last day of the world, I think it will still be absurd. You know? mm-hmm. And that's very different than the Western philosophy of progress. Everything's getting better and better. No, reality is marked with a cross, which means it's marked with a radical absurdity. And to forgive it for being absurd, to forgive it for being tragic, keeps the heart space open. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's beautiful once you understand it, you know. Without it... I've just seen so many activists become so disheartened. They they throw out all religion. They they don't need to do that. I'm not saying they got to be like me or follow my religion, but we do have a recipe for how to keep your heart and your compassion flow open toward everything. Mm-hmm. So that you can then creatively act and and do your activism from a different place very good right very good thank you now what was the first one so the first one was uh (laughs) refusal to participate in systems of oppression yeah Uh, because we never had uh non-cooperation non-participation modeled for us really till the 1960s. The word didn't, just like the word nonviolence didn't exist, uh, non-cooperation uh, didn't exist. 
didn't I talk about this though earlier on uh, the uh, the town down the road from Nazareth? That wasn't here. Mm -mm. Okay. No, no. You're talking about the is that John Diamond Crossan's point about how Jesus did not participate in in that economy? No, well, that's what, what, what's the road down the road. Nine miles down the road from Nazareth. It was like the, the imperial center. That, yeah, that Sepphoris. Yeah. Did I talk about Sepphoris in this? Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Well, then let's use that as the yeah. stirring example. Right. Uh, nine miles down the road from Nazareth, which is really tiny. It's still rather tiny if you go there today. Uh, is what was the growing town where all the building was happening in Jesus' lifetime, called Sepphoris. It was the regional Roman capital. If what the Bible says is true, Jesus' father Joseph was a workman. We translate that carpenter, which is fine. Uh, but it was more a construction worker, really, with any tools or with any materials. The fact that Sepphoris was never once mentioned, when it's very likely that's the nine-mile walk they would have taken to do much of their work. There's no condemnation of it. There's no praise of it. There's no mention of it. You could use that not as a definitive example, but a likely example that Jesus just ignores the Roman oppressors because he can show friendship with them, as he does with the centurion when he heals his servant. doesn't bring up the subject that he is a Roman. Why are you doing this to our people? He should have said that <laughs> to the Roman centurion. In fact, when he gets home, his servant is healed and then has at his death another centurion, who is the first one, who asserts his divinity. Truly, this was the Son of God. Mark's Gospel, I think. So, um, it's not direct confrontation. It's sort of a nonviolence 101. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, we used to use damning with faint praise. You know, you just, okay, those Romans, that's what they're about, but I'm not going to get you into an anti-Roman mm -hmm. frenzy because I know where that leads. Mm. I know that the scribes and Pharisees are a hypocrite. Well, he does say some pretty strong things about that. <laughs> but uh, he certainly, in general, is, is telling you to, to clean your own cup mm. before you attack others. So um, it, it is nonviolence training 101. That don't make the problem out there or you never get beyond it you mm -hmm. just you keep thinking other people are the problem other people are uh, you have to change uh, and he won't allow that mm -hmm. rather consistently mm -hmm. so it's non-cooperation with stupid system systems ignoring them uh, and building up a better system by his uh, teaching to his disciples. Now his name for the better system was the kingdom of God or the reign of God. That's a unique approach. The best 
criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Hey guys, we're just going to do it better. And I'm going to give you the, the rituals and the keys and the teaching to how to do it better. But let's not be anti-people. Let's be for something. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's like a creative resistance mm-hmm. then, right? Because it's not, mm. there's something about oppositional resistance that's just in reaction to. Yeah. But the prophetic quality of his resistance to the empire was a creative, look, there's so much more than yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. There's another abundant paradigm. You can stop this fishing for the empire and come with me and let me introduce you to this other paradigm, this kingdom way of being. And that, I don't know, that's helpful for me to think about, you know, as we consider what we can glean from his approach to dealing or not dealing with the empire. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's true. Who's the wonderful poet, teacher in Kentucky? Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, yeah. I mean, just his whole life, he says, I'm just going to take one piece of land and do it right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost Jesus saying that, although Jesus is talking about the big piece of land should do it right. But to be patient with one piece of land which is respected and honored and protected and made fruitful. Mm. Boy, that's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Small is beautiful. Mm. Yeah, what a prophetic voice. Yes. And with that, there's the element of a simple life that you also name of Jesus. Um, one of the ways that he also, in this modality of activism, um, can you further unpack that? I know this ties to, to part of the value of yesterday too, mm. of simplicity. How does J- Jesus exemplify that? I think if you would try to communicate what Jesus' social justice teaching is, you won't find a highly uh, rarefied explanation of justice theories and so forth. You will find that his, you know, and you'll find the same in Francis. The way to most do justice is to live simply which is building on the other one, to not cooperate with consumerism, with militarism, with, with all the games that have us trapped. So the fact that it mentions things like a common purse, for example. Yeah. What do Christians do? They call that communism. <laughs> it's rather clear. Uh, he, he, he just does it differently and does it very simply. And you could say largely, except for groups like the Mennonites and the Amish, that hasn't been taken seriously. Right. Simplicity of life. Certainly not by Catholics. Yeah, at the common level of community. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. That, to, that we're all committed to. When you live simply... You're unbeholding to the system. Less, the more simple you can live. Like we all maybe know a couple people who try to live below the taxable level. Mm. And there's some right here in Albuquerque. You just, you say, I don't know how to do that, but I sure admire you for doing it. <clears throat> they, because uh, we see the higher you go up, the more beholding you are 
to the rewards of the system. Look at our whole Congress. Its capacity for truth and justice seems so severely compromised. It just, it always sells out to money. Uh, so we're not saying you need to take a vow of poverty, but you better give money a severe critique mm. or it will become demonic in the sense that anything uncritiqued in my judgment soon becomes demonic. Mm -hmm. And that's capitalism for us now, uncritiqued. So here, I, I think I've told you the story. It, first week in the novitiate, August of 1961, we're sitting in the classroom and our novice master says, trying to sort of rile us up. Now, I hope you all know you've just joined a communist organization. <laughs> now, this is 61. <laughs> I mean, you didn't talk that way. And, and he says, you're all wondering what I mean. You never questioned the novice master. But he said, we really are. We share all things in common. And if you take vows a year from today, uh, you're giving up your right to own anything. And then he taught us, I have it on my early books, everything that we possessed in our room, we had to write in Latin, Ad usum simplicem, Friar Alexander, that was my name then, uh, for the simple use of. Huh. Just to remind us, you don't own that. And when you leave, it's somebody else's, you know. Wow. I've still got one or two books with that written in it, for the simple use of. Mm. Uh, how else do you teach things unless it's almost that severe or that concrete. This book is not mine. And it was especially true of books, because that's a tendency of academic people. We were setting out for eight years of academics. I think after a while I stopped writing it though. <laughs> Interesting. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. 
Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. You know, as we're talking about the different ways in which Jesus creatively, prophetically resisted the empire, one of the things I've been fascinated by in our Christian tradition is, is whatever happened to healing. You know, this was such a Very central good. part of yeah. his ministry and his work. And it was an central, act, central. And it was like an active part. Page to, after page after yeah, page. Yes. Uh, and at such an active part of what he was doing uh, in resistance to a system, both religious and in the empire, that had discarded individuals as not being worthy and bodies mm. as not being worthy. And so I, I wonder, what does it mean to be a rejoiner, a healer? A, a, a bringer together of what has been divided mm. by the empire or by the systems of our time that seek oh. to divide. I've been saying the last year, try putting, at least it works for me, try putting the word healing in contradistinction to punishing. That We were so raised inside of the framing of rewarding and punishing, rewarding and punishing all based on, on a transactional notion of religion and upon a notion of retributive justice. Until those two notions are dislodged, which is the experience of grace. Uh, we talk about the gospel really being transformational, not transactional. But certainly when I was growing up, we saw the meaning of the miracles at the literal level, the least helpful level, as simply miracles to prove that Jesus was God. He could turn water into wine. He could walk on the water. As you said earlier, that's transactional religion. It denies the symbolic. It denies the relational. It denies the archetypal to get that literal. And there's really no message beyond our God is the true God, because he can do this. <laughs> so every Sunday we all cheered, our Jesus worked miracles. Um, it, it left us with a, a religion whose only frame was reward punishment for not believing in those miracles, maybe, or something like that. Mm. So distinguish it from uh, punishing, healing, and you've got a great lens. Because once it's not about believing, so we can punish those who don't believe, <laughs> but here we got Jesus working with people who are wounded. Mm -hmm. And maybe part of it is that we don't usually have the bias anymore that sickness is a punishment from God. Mm -hmm but almost all cultures historically did. Mm -hmm. Sickness is a punishment from God. You'll still find that in much of Africa and much of Asia. And if we tell the truth in much of America, many people still believe this. So we have Jesus not punishing anybody, but letting them out of the trap mm -hmm. uh, of that belief system. Uh, now, naturally, they fell in love with him and they sought him as a miracle worker. But the, the medical cure is never the meaning of the text. 
Never. The medical cure. It's the rearranging of relationships and the rearranging of self-image that takes place when I can't play the victim anymore. Mm. That's real clear in the man who never gets into the pool in time. Mm -hmm. He's been playing the victim for 38 years. <laughs> he really goes rather slowly. He doesn't want to get healed. Probably a nine, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> My Just people. passively. My, My people. <laughs> we take our time. <laughs> uh, once you just give people that clue and ask them, how were the relationships rearranged? Mm. They'll go back into the village. People are afraid of them because they liked him out in the cemetery. The, the, the roles were clear. He's the damn stupid person. We're the wonderful healed person. Now the healed person comes back uh, as healed and we like him damned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's wonderful, helpful, fruitful communication. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to keep saying that. Um, that punishment is what emerges and reward. Mm -hmm. Reward and punishment emerge when you don't have the primacy of healing. Mm. And sure enough, we did not in any of our churches have the primacy of healing. Yeah. And to name that Jesus would often heal on the Sabbath, right? Yes, like, like, even doing it wrong. Yeah. Uh-huh. And touching lepers, breaking the rules, touching dead bodies. Healing is his job. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. You know? And then using the healing to, uh, to communicate a lesson. And healing unbelievers just as much as believers and healing people who didn't ask for it as much as those who asked for it. It's just all logic is thrown yeah. into the heavens, you see. That's such a helpful frame, though, the, that he's, what is. he's doing is flipping the order and the power and the structure of relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah That's yeah. so helpful. It really is, and leads to, dare I say it, a liberation theology. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And now Jesus is a liberator, not a miracle worker. Mm -hmm. It does no good to just define him as a miracle worker. Right. Uh, yeah, oh, oh, it's fine if you believe he is, but mm -hmm. it's not going to help you anything. Mm. And in fact, it created more problems. Because mm. why doesn't Jesus now in 2019 heal my epileptic son? And that's been true for half of the Christians who've ever lived. Yeah. Well, why did you work miracles then and not now? It's because we don't understand the nature of miracle, mm. uh, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, part of the, the phrase that jumped to my mind was like how Jesus just doesn't pick a team, right? Like he's for everybody. Yes. And um, thinking about he that. some workers. Yeah. But, uh, you used the right word. He doesn't pick a team. Yeah, that can be against the other team. Yeah. That's a good word. And then to look at, you know, our Christian history today and to see how the church has colluded with empire over time. Rich, can you, can you talk to us, help us understand how that the original spirit of the Jesus movement kind of lost its momentum as it got institutionalized? Yeah. How do we lose that ability to, to speak truth to power and to empire in, in such a way? Do you want me to give you the historical dates? 
or I did, did I say it here, or was that in Santa Fe last weekend? Uh, how in Israel, he offered an experience, it moved to Greece, and it became a philosophy. Did I say that? Oh, no. no that sounds, oh, good. Yeah. That sounds good. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. And then it moved to Rome, and it became organized religion, hmm. Rome and Constantinople. Then it moved to Europe, and it became a culture. <laughs> You're going to love the last step. <laughs> moved to America and became a business. Oof. Oh. This isn't much of an exaggeration, wow. if an exaggeration at all. The original experience being lost is even necessary. Are, are possible for most people. So experience, philosophy, organized religion, culture, business. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm glad I put that yeah, here. I'm going to let that land. No, no what did you ask me, though? <laughs> no, I mean. Hang on. We just need to yeah. sit with the, yeah, the yeah. grief mm, of that. That's, mm, yeah. I, I mean, you took a brush and just kind of painted and oh, answer yeah. that question away because that's what I was asking. How do okay. we get from that original Jesus movement yeah. to losing that that kind of energetic, energetic zeal and lifestyle yeah. Yeah. as yeah. it got institutionalized? And mm. I feel like in a very short short order, you kind of helped paint that picture about as it got institutionalized, it was just kind of losing some of the the, yeah. the incarnational mystic mysticism of it. It just was being codified in ways of thinking or ways of doing business. And in each of those permutations or yeah. iterations it became above uh, above criticism mm. <laughs> it was the religion the philosophy the culture uh, like you just came back from Spain I mean mm -hmm. you see it there everywhere right unquestionable Roman Catholicism uh, the, the wonderful thing is how grace grace flows that even inside of each of those iterations there emerged humble, loving people, every one of them. The gospel never stopped uh, uh, converting pure hearts. But if you didn't bring a pure heart to it, uh, not much good could happen. I'm reflecting on um, something you shared or we were talking about uh, when we were talking about um, a conversation about the scriptures. And... You know, I can feel inside myself as you as you did that historical uh, drive by that is so depressing. <laughs> drive by, <laughs> so depressing. Um, I can feel myself wanting to say, "Well, then, what's the point of sticking to this Christian tradition when we know that this tradition doesn't is has gone so far away from yeah. the intent of the founder and." I guess that's that's um, I can feel the ways in which I want to to peel out the complexity of being human, the complexity of this plane of existence, like you said, the fact that it is absurd, and there's some part of me that wants to just push against it and and pull away from it and say, well, I don't. What's the point then? And yet I feel like there's an invitation through your teaching of the universal Christ in which. I can somehow embrace this great journey that we've been on in Christianity, even though it has moved so far away from the kind of original example. But it's it's hard to do that. Like, it's hard to not... I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm making a lot of sense no, here. No, you are. You how, are. How do you stay on the edge of the inside, Richard? Like, how... <laughs> I know you've got your vows and you're a Franciscan, yeah. but besides that, how do you keep your heart on the edge of the inside 
How do you not get frustrated? Largely what helps me at this point is my age. I'm just on cruise control, you know. I mean, really, it's like I can't start over again mm. at this point. Um, no, I, I mean, that's partially true. But I think it's much harder for young people like you to say, how do I raise my kids? How do I use my Sundays? How do I use my studies? How do I make sure that the Christianity that they are taught by or that they can be infused by um, or they can be shaped by isn't the business Christianity. Yeah, yeah. You do the best you can. But to completely absent yourself from the tension or the dilemma would be true spiritual laziness. Mm. And and I think that's what uh, Scott Peck also said. He in his first one, People of the Lie, he said, I just find that most spiritual people are lazy. Mm-hmm. They want all their answers given, they refuse to, you know, he starts with life is hard, life is hard. Mm. And the acceptance of that hardness is to stay inside the dilemma and let it itch you. Mm. Let it itch you. That doesn't mean you got to be a bona fide, card-carrying, whatever, each Sunday. But to completely upset yourself from anything that itches you is to normally, and I say this now, observing a lot of people grow up, to become very egocentric. Mm -hmm. You are the only frame of reference. I'm not going to allow history, institutions... Institution is another word for incarnation. Mm. <laughs> Damn it. Wish it wasn't. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, the other piece I didn't give you is uh, the dates. Don't you think that would be valuable here of 313 and 1054? Uh, I think you may have done it before in a previous episode. Oh, did I? Oh, yeah. I did. Okay, yeah. great, great, great. Let's not go back yeah. there. But those are the big historical reasons yeah. that we, uh, we looked to different places for our authority. Mm. And we gave it to emperors and kings instead of really the gospel. Mm. While pretending Jesus was Lord. Mm. It didn't really mean it. Yeah. yeah, you know, Richard. There's a story that comes to mind of, uh, for me, that like energetic, uh, radical roots movement of the Jesus movement uh, that involves you when we were in South Africa, and uh, it was the fragrance fragrance of that those early days where someone I don't know if you remember this at all, but we were at that Probably men's don't. retreat. Tell me, tell me. And there is a, a man there who was working with uh, the homeless on on the shipyards. He desperately wanted to become a Franciscan. He had a little dog he brought with him to the retreat. And um, he was very much living a life uh, of poverty. He was a white Afrikaner who was, oh, who was living amongst uh, the poor in, yes. I think, in Cape Town. But he desperately wanted to, to feel like he was a part of this Franciscan lineage. Wow. And so he, want, he wanted um, to be kind of institutionalized in that way. Mm. But uh, you offered a blessing in the spirit of Francis. And he, he received it in such a way that he began to call himself a Franciscan. Just my little old Just, blessing. And God. it felt like it was that, that early movement of human to human. We don't need the church to, you don't need the, the drapery of uh, being an yeah. official member of this community, but to be 
hands laid on, prayed over, yeah. blessed in this way. Like That's a transmission. The Apostolic succession. Yeah, yeah. and carried yeah. on in that way. And he completely transformed after that no re- reception. Kidding. And Thanks for reminding me of that. And that's where I feel like that the fragrance of that early movement mm-hmm. continues on is through the person to person, community to community. That where it's not necessarily yep, going yep, through yep, the yep, yep. the formal. Yes, because we see now that the formalization of it, the laying hands on by a bishop, has just at this point not fit the deal. It does. <laughs> it, the fruit of it is not that evident that people have had hands laid on them really more often than not represent Jesus mm. or Jesus' values. More often than not, they represent churchianity, mm. how to hold together this institution. That's really good. Have you said that before, churchianity? You've never heard me use that? <laughs> yeah, dang. I, I think I used that more in Cincinnati in my early years. That's good. Well, I'm glad I could introduce it. That's good. And it's probably a problem more for Catholics. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I feel like the evangelical culture, Protestant culture, it equates Christianity with the Sunday culture. Mm. And, yes, and this that's is what good. This, good. this very conversation is pointing to is that no, the, the Jesus movement was a social movement. It was a reordering and restructuring of mm-hmm. relationships. It was, it was there is this other way. There, this is... This is the uh, the way that this empire does it, but this is the kingdom of God. Here's another reality that you can fall back into and be freed from the limitations and constructs and wounding and oppression of this of this small empire. Yeah, and I love how uh, the kingdom of God in that way is everywhere, right? It's, yeah, it's not localized to one specific place or or time and point and gathering, but it's right. always at hand. So Richard, as a way to close here, where do you see the living, the embodied, the universal Christ revolution now? Where do you see it alive and well? You know, when I would travel, uh, I said this, and I'm sure I have no statistical proof for this, but I said, with all the philosophies on the world stage and all the world views, the only people who smile a lot (laughs) tend to be sincere believers in whatever. Who smile a lot and a sincere happiness. If we could just gather together. And, And what I mean by that is the third stage happiness. Not the naivete of first stage. I saw a lot of that in the charismatic movement. But then I saw people who still got very offended when they didn't get their way. But I mean third stage smiling. Third stage reordering where I'm, uh, I'm genuinely happy in this world. I don't, I don't meet many people who really can genuinely smile, who haven't accepted the inevitability of the Paschal mystery and that they're a part of it, that they're in on the deal and they're a part of something good. I don't even know that they need to use the word God, but they find divine purpose. They don't even need to use the word divine purpose, but that's what they found, divine purpose. Someone like Wendell Berry, who we mentioned before. 
people who don't need to use the word God anymore, but they're at home in this world, they're connected in this world. So that tells me the virus of the gospel, as Rene Girard called it, has been released effectively into history because every country you go to, there are people who get it, mm-hmm. who are just caring, forgiving, uh, loving, big heart, big mind, big, big, big people. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. They might be, you know, old lumberjacks in Alaska, and they never go to church. But someone, maybe through their grandma, through their dad, someone communicated a big love to them. Mm. And they're living that big love. That's, now, how is that going to pass to the next generation and the next? That's why I'd say we still are going to need, I know people will hate me for saying it, the little street corner church. We're still going to need the little gathering of two or three who keep renewing the proclamation, keep renewing the good news in every generation. Because otherwise it will, the yeast will be lost. Mm-hmm. And, and it, how do you get it burning again, as Jesus says, mm-hmm. if the, the tender is lost? So um, what, what's happening is that the the effective message is dissociating in our time from the structures because the structures had become an end in themselves. Mm-hmm. And we're about their own self-preservation, self-magnification, instead of the proclamation of the mystery of faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. And once we catch faith, hope, and love, our our addiction to... The, the group that's talking about faith, hope, and love is lessened. Mm. You won't hate it, but you won't need it either. Mm. <laughs> it strikes me that the, that the historical arc that you described from the Jesus movement to this progressive, you know, institutionalized form of Christianity all the way to business Christianity is this desire to contain and control. Mm. And yet, the spirit of the universal Christ seems to subversively, I love that Rene Girard line. Mm. It's like a virus. It's virus a contagion. Virus gospel, a contagion. Despite yes. the poured concrete of our institutional attempts, there is this weed-like nature of mm. Christ that grows yes. through the cracks. Yes. And I think that gives me a lot of hope for our future as well, mm. to think that maybe what's breaking apart right now is the concrete of the structure so that more of that Jesus movement, more of that Christ energy can break through. Yeah. You got it. I think that has to be what God is doing. And that's our job is to recognize what God is doing and to trust it, even though it will feel like death. And I'm finding the older I get, it's equally hard to trust resurrection. Mm. And that's what the liberal cannot do. <laughs> They cannot trust that resurrection. It's, it's as hard as trusting death. Yeah. Mm. It's trusting, boy, there's a lot of good things happening. Mm. Yeah, Because we like being cynical. <laughs> it's an easier <laughs> it's way out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And here are a couple of voicemails from our listeners. I would like to ask Father Rohr 
about the effort it will take to help all religions reduce clericalism. I often think what the world of Christianity would be like without clericalism. A Christian world of collaboration, a community of equals, but each having a role according to the talents and community understanding of each individual. Maybe not in my lifetime, after all, I'm only 70. But I do think it can happen, not really sure what it's all going to take. I do realize that dualism is at the core of clericalism. Clericalism is like alcohol to an addicted person. How much longer can the teachings of Christ be reduced to a dualistic polarization of conflict with human experience? I often ask myself, is Christ to be nothing, nothing at all but a battering ram aimed at ordinary people and their experiences of being human? Thank you. I love the way you said that. Um, yeah, you know, maybe you've heard me say somewhere how in the living school we, our methodology is a tricycle of three wheels moving forward, and the front wheel is experience. The back wheels are scripture and tradition. If those three balance and regulate one another, I believe we have the basis for good thinking, for good experiencing. But uh, the hardest decision for me to come to was to put experience first, because I realized we Catholics were warned against it, in the name of clericalism. The clergy will teach you what the truth is. In effect, don't have any experience. You don't need any. And the Protestant very often was warned against it in terms of Bible quotes and learn the Bible. So uh, you're right on that uh, this is almost a new skill for us to learn. Uh, what is our own experience, and as you well put, that it matters. Why could God incarnate the God self in the world and then say, but everything about this world is of no account? Just leap over it to uh, uh, religious vocabulary, religious language. It, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Uh, you know, maybe this is a stretch, maybe it's even sentimental, but today is the Feast of the Epiphany, formally the 12th day of Christmas. We celebrated it yesterday. And in reflecting on the, the gospel story, I realized how many uh, heresies were being <laughs> presented in that story. First of all, that these three guys are coming from the East, they're clearly not Jews. They're clearly not bona fide anything in the Jewish way of thinking. And their guidance is not a book, not the Quran, not the, the Bible, but a star. I mean, we call that astrology and we were warned against it. But suddenly we sanctify it, led by a star. How many songs don't say, that's experience. And there it is right in our story. But once we sanctify these stories, we don't see how revolutionary they are. Mm. And, uh, you know, that this was almost then repeated in history in the 1960s when all these gurus from the East 
entered the Western world and the first level was total dismissal, criticism, paganism. Uh, there's no evidence that Jesus told them they could not uh, honor him or be with him or be present. In fact, I noticed, I usually read the text a number of times, the word uh, homage, paying him homage, is used three times. So where did this capacity for awe and wonder and respect and unity come from? It didn't come from belonging to the right club. It came from people who knew how to read their own experience. Not just the star, but what were they learning on the journey, on the travel? Uh, It's such a beautiful story. It really is. Uh, so that's just in my mind because of the feast right now. Mm. But uh, we're, we're almost starting at the beginning. Now, if you have the courage, read books like the Confessions of St. Augustine, the Autobiography of Teresa of Avila, and you'll see here's two people born out of due time who very much trusted their experience. Mm. Julian of Norwich, too. Mm. So, and now we say, oh, aren't they marvelous? But they don't quote bishops and documents and and even scriptures that much. They just quote their experience. Mm. Here, uh, Teresa's uh, picturing herself as a butterfly, you know. Well, that sounds pretty, uh, what? Anti empire. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I what mean, an image, though. And I, I sincerely, yeah. like your emphasis of experience allows us to see the ways that Christianity co opted empire and systems of power over. Yep, yep, and clericalism yep. does that yep, power over. Yep, if there's an authority yep. figure that can tell me what to yep. believe, what's right and wrong, then I'm more comfortable with reality. Yeah, yeah. And Beatrice Bruteau, who's somebody I've been studying a lot lately, has a book called The Holy Thursday Revolution. And in it, she talks about how Jesus models a power with paradigm, a communion Mm. paradigm, where it's about, you know, you see him over and over again, empowering his disciples to go out. You Mm. do, you go and take this further than I did. You know, that's not clericalism. That's no, not, sure you can't isn't. do this without me. It sure isn't, yeah. Yeah, I think about too, you mentioned Teresa of Avila and how St. John the Cross used a lot of her images, a lot of her language. Like, here he is, a priest bending towards... Uh, the lowly woman. The, the, the holy, I was going to say <laughs> holy woman, but like... Unordained. Yeah, unordained. No but formal like, theological study. Totally <laughs> not a clerical move, right? Yes, but just, yes, but, yes. But bending towards the mystery of her experience and... God, like the power of friendship in that and trusting yeah, one another's experience beautiful. is so, like, wow. I would love to see that become more a part of the church I've movement. I've never developed that. That's a good point, Paul. And that oh. the, how you, the, the, the role of contemplation for us is also in unknowing and unlearning the world's um, obsession and systems of power mm-hmm. and learning how to trust that experience more. I think that also feels like an invitation for us, Richard, and what you're pointing out. We were so afraid of what we called subjectivity, that we were going to slide into individualistic subjectivity. And here we end up having that more than anything else while thinking we were opposing it. Most people are moving around inside of sloppy emotionalism. Mm. 
<laughs> after all of our warnings against it. Uh, so let's hold subjectivity to some account, visibility and accountability. And that's why even in our own school, we've taught things like the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, the spiritual direction, spiral dynamics, various tools that help us critique our own experience. Mm -hmm. Uncritiqued experience, I admit, will soon become very sloppy and very egocentric. So did you hear me say that? I said it, all right, so uh, I recognize that. But the alternative is not uh, no experience because you're gonna interpret scripture and tradition through your own experience anyway. Mm -hmm. What else can you do? Let's be honest. Everybody does it. Martin Luther did it. John Calvin did it. The popes did it. We all are bound in the context of our culture, our century, our biases, our family system, and Richard Rohr is doing it, I'm sure. And it'll be much clearer a <laughs> hundred years from now how I was doing it. But the wonderful thing of, there's the club of imperfection again. Yeah. That this is what God works with and has the humility to love. We forgive you, Richard. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously imperfect. <laughs> uh, that's good. I so respect Father Richard's spirituality, but I have to admit that every now and then I feel uncomfortable when I sense his anti-Trump and progressive liberal bias period i totally understand how his love for the marginalized influences this in light of trump's seeming anti-immigrant position but I cannot help but hear what the mainstream media keeps talking about promoting the liberal agenda, period. So I guess my personal question also is how do we uh, think non-dualistically or approach such national situation without sounding pro-liberal or pro-democrat or pro-Trump? Okay, let me try. I just said to a crowd last night here in Albuquerque, uh, just to go to the end of your question right away, the Democratic Party is totally in collusion with capitalism, with money, with war. And if you listen to enough of me, you'll hear that. Uh, so it isn't an either-or choice. It's just uh, we've got to critique the powers that be, not the powers that might be. And presently, uh, it's not the liberal agenda running the show. Maybe it would seem that way. But it's, in fact, uh, uh, a party that refuses to critique money and power and war. So I would be remiss if I didn't say these things, I said it to the board at a board meeting a few weeks ago. 
Our desire is not to be liberal, it is to be prophetic. And uh, I can understand. I think this is why the prophets were themselves misunderstood. I'm not trying to place myself in their camp. But people think you've taken sides. Well, you have, but after weighing the gospel value of both sides. If you don't do that, you get into really fuzzy thinking. Now, the days when uh, uncritical, lazy thinking Democrats, who the only thing is choice and individualism, when they're calling the shots, I hope I equally critique them. But right now, that's not our task. We're being led into a place of real uh, chaos uh, right now because you're not allowed to critique uh, the form of, of government that we're experiencing at this point. In fact, the biggest support group, as you surely know, is evangelical Christianity, white evangelical Christianity, which says something right there, that we're dealing with empire and those who enjoy the fruits of empire. So uh, stay with me uh, if you want to, you don't have to, but <laughs> I, I think you'll find that I, in the end, try to be fair to both sides, but you have to succeed at dualistic clarity before you can achieve a non-dual response. You don't jump over dualistic clarity and give a pious non-dual response until you've suffered the idiocy of, of both sides, really and particularly the side that is the present domination system inside of any group. I think there's a kernel there in that question, too, of um, saying, is it because of your love for those on the marginalized that you're anti-Trump? That I would say that line is suspect at the end of anti-Trump, but it's, it's, it's out of love for those on the margins. It's, it's being pro for those on the margins, which I think... It's yeah. not anti-anything. No, I'm it's not It's being interested. pro to those who are not being invited to the table. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that some of my phraseology has sounded to you anti-Trump. My life is too short now, and the issues are too urgent to be anti. I'm not interested in being anti. But we got to proclaim the gospel, especially when the groups that hold the Christian flag are seemingly so co-opted uh, by the non-gospel. So uh, forgive us if we're pushing a little bit. I think we need to push a lot right now. Yeah, I, I find that if we think about things in terms of the body of Christ, the way you talk about the universal Christ, then we have a responsibility to protect where the body of Christ is being harmed. Yeah. You know, and I, I do think that that invites us to see what you, what you talk about. There's a place for, for a prophetic um, critique that doesn't diminish or demean people who may support that view, but it's to say we have a responsibility. We do actually need to act. We, you know, that a part of our participation in the body of Christ is to protect 
and to and to pay attention to where where you know the communities that are being marginalized and what's happening to our planet or our environment mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. i don't know where we got the idea that non-duality was like a lack of critique or a lack of I opinion know, right? where did we get that it's yeah. a really poor understanding it, it certainly isn't a blissed out state mm-hmm. of passivity mm-hmm. yeah. you know and i think we we put we look at jesus and we see that our example of non-duality is not passive. Maybe I should use the word Trumpism, mm. Mm. if that helps some people. Because it's a word that congeals around the habits and behaviors and attitudes of one man, and you can get it real quick. Mm. When you say war, power, and money, uh, I don't know what that means. But you say Trumpism, okay. And then you add to it, obscenity, immorality, cruelty, deceit, and 25 other vices. Uh, So you you cover a lot of bases, frankly, by speaking of the evil of Trumpism. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.